This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb J., Sam VR, Julian, Levi, and Lydia. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. We'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. This week, both of our serious questions have to do with Jesus and his death on the cross. First, Caleb J. asks, If Jesus died not on the cross, would it still save us? You know, the more I think about this question, the more I change my mind. Essentially, what Caleb is asking is whether or not Jesus could have died by some other means than crucifixion and still save us. So, on the one hand, I think we can say that the important thing about Jesus' death was the death itself, not the means. When we talk about the cross, it's a way of referring to the fact of Jesus' death, and his death was necessary for our salvation, because Jesus is the high priest who offers himself up as a once-and-for-all atoning sacrifice for our sin. But there's nothing specific about crucifixion as the means of death. In other words, at least in theory, God could have chosen a different way for Jesus to die, and the result would have been the same. He needed to die a sacrificial death, but I'm not sure that we can say it had to be through crucifixion. On the other hand, though, everything about the plan of salvation is very deliberate. There's nothing random about the way that God works salvation. Everything matters, even down to the details. Now, the Old Testament prophets don't come out and say things like, the Messiah will be crucified by the Romans on a cross. But the things that they do say fit down to the details with what happened to Jesus. When I consider that, I think we have to say that we shouldn't look at crucifixion as an insignificant variable. Even if we don't quite understand all of the necessities involved, the plan that God worked out was done exactly the way that God intended, and that included the crucifixion of Jesus down to the very details. The fact that God chose the cross as the means of atonement is essential to salvation, even if hypothetically we could imagine God doing it a different way. And now Sam VR wants to know, if Jesus had sinned, would he still be able to save us? Let's spend a moment and think about how salvation works. And as we do that, I think the answer to this question is going to come into focus. In order to attain glory, human beings needed to keep God's commandment perfectly. But instead of doing this, Adam fell into sin and we fell with him. Now, because of that sin, we cannot be saved by our own righteousness. So humanity, in order to attain to glory, needs basically a second Adam to come along, a human being who can attain perfect righteousness. And then that righteousness will be counted to all his people. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God who became fully human 
And as a human, he lived a life of perfect righteousness so that everyone who belongs to him, everyone who has faith in him, has that righteousness of his counted to them. In other words, when you are judged by God, if you have faith in Jesus, then his perfection is counted as yours and you enter into glory with him. Now, in order for that to work, there has to be a perfect righteousness that can be counted to us. So if Jesus had been sinful like us, then he could not have done what he did. So that's the answer to the question. Our Redeemer had to be perfect and without sin. And that's the reason why only Jesus can save. Why there is no salvation in any other name. Because only Jesus could do what was necessary for human salvation. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this week from Julian. Let's give Julian a round of applause. Here's Julian's question. Do people still get possessed by demons? Julian, when it comes to demons, there's a quote of C.S. Lewis's that I like to start with. It's something that he wrote in the Screwtape Letters. Uh, Here's the quote. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So when you think about that quote, it gives us kind of two pitfalls that we want to avoid. On the one hand, there are people who reject the existence of the supernatural entirely. They basically regard demons and angels as if they were just mythological creatures. And that is a grave mistake. The French poet Baudelaire once wrote that the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. That's something we definitely want to avoid, not believing in the reality of demons just as not believing in the reality of angels, would be contrary to what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, it's possible for us to become too interested, too obsessed with demons in a way that ignores one of the major teachings of the New Testament, which is that Jesus has achieved victory over Satan and his minions, breaking their power. So demons are real, and Christ really has triumphed over them. In the Gospels, Jesus encounters people who are possessed by demons or unclean spirits, and he drives those demons out. They don't really stand a chance against him. It makes sense. In Jesus' temptation, he was confronted by Satan himself, and he triumphed. So ever after that, all of Satan's minions are basically there to be pushed around and, and, and cast out by Jesus. In those instances of demon possession and activity, we see them manifesting in two main ways. There are people who suffer these terrible ailments because of demons, and there are other people who seem to have supernatural or occult gifts because of demons. 
can think, for example, of the man who was possessed by so many demons that they called themselves legion, and Jesus cast those demons out. Or you can think about the young girl who, because of a, a demonic influence, had this fortune-telling ability, and when the apostle Paul encountered her, he cast that out. But in the New Testament, illness isn't always, or, or even usually, connected to demon possession. Most of the people that Jesus and the apostles healed don't have some sort of demonic source for their ailments, and that's important to keep in mind. It's interesting, too, as you look at the whole narrative of the Bible, you realize that demonic activity seems to be especially intense in the days of Jesus and the apostles. Demonic activity in the New Testament is much greater than what you see in the Old Testament and much greater than what we see later. If you ask yourself why that is, I think there's a clear answer. It's because this is the, the, the moment when Jesus is establishing his kingdom in this world. And so it makes sense that the powers of this world fight back in a major way, only to be defeated. So as the power of God's kingdom advances, we see the power, the influence of Satan being curtailed. But that doesn't mean it's been eliminated. That doesn't mean that demonic influence in the world is a thing of the past, not at all. Missionaries to lands without a Christian influence will often report a much greater sense of demonic activity. But I think even here in, in our own environments, we can see the influence of Satan and his minions all around us. Scripture warns us that there are sins we can fall into. There are behaviors that give a foothold to Satan, that open us up to demonic influence in our lives. Dabbling in the occult is one example that you find in Scripture. Uh, generally, in the Bible, demonic activity goes hand in hand with idolatry, with the worship of false gods. So, clearly, idolatry is something to be avoided. So the question is, can people still be possessed by demons? And from what we've talked about so far, I think the answer is clearly, definitely. That, that still remains a reality. But you have to remember that demon possession in real life isn't like what you see in the movies. In the same way that a lot of what we think we know about angels doesn't come from the Bible, it comes from popular culture, I think the same thing is true about demons as well. There's a lot of of knowledge, so-called, about demons that is actually fictional. It's not based on anything that the Bible teaches. And so whenever we approach this subject, we always want to be careful to deal with what the Bible teaches, not with what's out there in the culture. Having said that, though, demonic influence is everywhere around us. The only protection against it is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Christ, the Spirit goes to work inside of us, giving us power to resist the influence of sin, death, and hell in our lives. Because a Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he or she cannot be possessed by demons. Yet, we can, through sin, open ourselves up to sinful influences. The Apostle James associates the sin of pride with demonic influence. He says that humility is a way to resist the devil. The Apostle Paul warns in Ephesians 4 that angry people, people who hold on to grudges, are giving the devil a foothold in their lives. I think a good thing to think about when we come to this question of demons is 
the way that Paul ends the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The reason he says this is to put us on our guard. Satan and his unclean spirits are real, and we must renounce them utterly. But we also have to remember that in that battle, Christ is victorious, and the Spirit armors us up with protection. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, we have a question from Levi who asks, what is the most exciting place you've been to? Levi, this is going to sound crazy because I know most people don't think of this as an exciting place, but the most exciting place I've ever been to was a museum. In fact, there's two different museum experiences and I can't really rank one above the other, so I'll just tell you about them both. I visited the British Museum in London, and there I came face to face with these ancient antiquities. They had things from Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome. I love history, and this was like being able to walk straight into the past, and I found that absolutely exciting. But there was another museum, the Wallace Collection, not too far from the British Museum, and there I went on a special trip where a curator opened up the cases and he handed me a sword, an old Viking sword, more than a thousand years old. And when I felt that in my hand, even though it was a, an ancient artifact, it still felt like it could chop something in half. And that feeling was absolutely thrilling. So even though you may not think of museums as exciting places, some of the most exciting places I've ever been to were museums. And now Lydia asks, what is your favorite flower? Well, Lydia, this episode is coming out the day before Valentine's Day, so I should probably say that red roses are my favorite flower. But you know what? They're not. If anything, I always feel a little stressed out about roses because I'm probably supposed to be giving my wife more of them than I have. As a Presbyterian minister, I should probably also say that tulips are my favorite because there's this famous acrostic that summarizes the five points of Calvinism using those letters, T-U-L-I-P. But honestly, there's a lot more to Calvinism than tulip. And I've planted a lot of tulip bulbs in my yard and only about half of them came up. So I'm still kind of on the fence about tulips. But there is a flower whose name I've always found mysterious and fascinating. I heard the name of this flower long before I ever saw one, so I didn't know what they looked like. And in my imagination, I gave the flower a look that went along with the name. And to be honest, I think my name and, and the, the, the thing that I came up with was actually much better than the reality. Now, the name of the flower is a jonquil. I always thought with a name like Jonquil, that would be an amazing flower. In real life, it actually falls a little short of the name. But the Jonquil of my imagination was pretty amazing. So I'll say that my favorite flower is the Jonquil as I pictured it before I saw the real thing.
Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.